0: Having a child has opened my eyes and allowed me to see my environment through a different lens. A specific example of this is when I look back at my travel experience pre and post baby. Before my son, I was like a free bird traveling from one city to another with minimal planning before each trip. Post baby, everything had to be planned, especially air travel. On each flight with my son, I usually carry a stroller, an oversized diaper bag, a big thermos of milk, a travel pillow, and my personal bag. And not to mention that I have to carry my son with all of these items. Traveling with a young child has allowed me to board commercial flights early alongside people with any disability or folks who just need a little extra time during the boarding process. Unfortunately, it wasn't until I qualified for early boarding that I ever considered people who traveled with a disability. According to the CDC, 12.1% of adults in the United States have some form of disability with mobility. In addition, the CDC has identified 61 million adults in the U.S. who live with a disability in hearing, vision, cognitive, mobility, self-care, or independent living. With air travel on the rise, how inclusive flying is for people with disabilities, and how are the airlines accommodating this growing demographic of travelers? Before we speak to experts in the fields, I'd like to share a few facts about the history of air travel and accessibility to the disabled population. In the early years of commercial air travel between 1920 to 1940s, there was minimal accommodations for people with disability. Airplanes were small and lacked the infrastructure to cater to passengers with mobility challenges or other disabilities. This changed during World War II as advancements in aviation technology and the experiences of injured veterans increased awareness of the need for disability accommodations and air travel. Some military transport planes were modified to accommodate wounded soldiers. After World War II, with the return of veterans with disabilities, there was a growing awareness of the need to make public spaces, including airports and airplanes, more accessible. However, progress was slow. In 1973, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act was passed. This landmark legislation in the United States prohibited discrimination based on disability and federal-funded programs and activities, and this included air travel. It was a significant step forward for disability rights. In 1986, the Air Carrier Access Act was passed to ensure that people with disabilities have equal access to air transportation services. It prohibited discrimination by commercial airlines against passengers with disabilities and required air carriers to provide necessary accommodations and services. Technological advancements and regulatory changes led to the development of wheelchair accessible aircraft. Some airlines started to include aircraft with wider aisles and movable armrests to accommodate passengers who use wheelchairs. Airlines and airports continue to invest in accessibility measures and resources for passengers with disability. This includes providing specialized assistance during boarding and deplaning. Offering accessible restrooms and ensuring that service animals are accommodated. In this episode of Uplink, Michael and I sit down with three experts to understand the subject better. Our guests include Carrie Renault, the CEO of Will North America, Kurt Bryant, Operations Manager at Savannah Hilton Head International Airport, and Kirk Goodlitt, Senior Director at Intervistas. Welcome to Uplink. The aviation dialogue starts here. I'm Shasta Ways,
1: and I'm Michael Wiles.
0: Thank you for joining us. To better understand the technology that help passengers become more mobile, we spoke with Carrie Renault, the CEO of Will North America.
2: Well, I've got about seventeen years' experience now in working with, well, initially with with individual traveling customers requiring mobility assistance at their point of destination. So we really started as a as a rental company, providing providing units, uh, um, mobility devices at traveling customers' point of destination, um, and then from there we really expanded relatively quickly, actually, into large scale venues throughout principally in the United States at most of the locations you would expect where, where the big venues exist, uh, whether that be Orlando, Las Vegas, et cetera. We, we actually got into providing services to the airlines on repair and service for airline passenger equipment, that particularly mobility equipment that was damaged in transit. And so that enabled us to really kind of connect some of the dots in creating a, a more uniform platform right across North America. We were acquired by Will, um, who were really focused, you know, not, not only on, on producing and manufacturing mobility equipment of a very unique and specific type, um, but also very, very involved in, the, in new technology and introducing new technology into, into that aspect of the industry. So really what's happened now is we've all come together and we're really focused now, not only in North America, but worldwide, in providing a higher level of mobility assistance for you know our aging population throughout the world.
1: Could you provide an overview of some of the top level features and design elements that the, the Will uh, powered chairs provide that make them suitable for addressing airport mobility issues?
2: The initial product that we've introduced has got a a proprietary uniwheel on on the device that enables it to turn the circumference and just the general navigation of those units is superior to anything else uh, on the market. Um, The very unique and individual industrial design, just the look and feel of the units themselves, they look very contemporary and And I think what we're prideful of is that we've really taken what was what used to be i think more of an industrial medical type of approach to to industrial design in our industry and really taken it to another level where you know these these units look like something that you know you'd be excited about navigating more specific though and more recent to the airport environment is the introduction of robotics and and the ability to introduce autonomous, and these are our products, autonomous units in the airport that will allow passengers that require mobility transportation from one, you know, one particular area in the airport to another on a dedicated dedicated route, and then enable that passenger then to get out at, you know, say we'll use the gate the gate as an example, where they pre-programmed these units and they've taken them to their designated gate, then the units on their own turn around and return to their original point of of origin. So the advantage here is that you create individual autonomy for that that passenger where they can move to a designation on their own without having to rely on another individual to get them there.
0: It's quite incredible that there are these autonomous wheelchairs. It really makes the passenger feel empowered and more independent, which is really big for a person who's navigating around the airports. Can you share with us how receptive airports or airlines have been to this new technology? And how soon can we see this just spread across the United States?
2: Well, um, certainly, lots of challenges. I mean, as you guys can appreciate, any time you're intro- introducing new technology, it's 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 going to be it's going to be challenging from an educational standpoint and creating you know a real comfort level. Um, especially the idea of moving from a you know what I would con- call more of a controlled circumstance where somebody that is within your employee is pushing that passenger you know throughout the airport now moving to a situation where you're empowering that that passenger and they have the ability effectively you know if they use our 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 manual devices to circumvent the airport on their own behalf or in the case of the autonomous you know move with electric vehicles move move throughout the airport so you know i think we're, we're super excited about the level of interest that's already been created um we, we have the first commercial application uh, in Winnipeg. We, we introduced the, and it's been up and running very successfully with four particular units for some time now. Um, we have lots of inquiries from more major U.S. airports now at this point. Um, they're certainly looking at, the, at the, uh, the Winnipeg example. And also, this has been up and running um, in Japan, in, in, the, in Haneda, and Narita airports for some time now and at a much broader scale. In Anita, I think we have 24 or 25 units up and running there. And having seen it personally, seen the program in action, it looks like something that's always been there. You know, it's being utilized, you know, regularly, it looks like it's 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 really part of the airport infrastructure rather than something that's, you know, more more appropriately, you know, a, a proof of concept or or in a trial phase. We constantly allude to the fact that we've done this very successfully in most of the U.S. major convention centers for a number of years now with no issues. And I, I visualize the day when the same thing will be happening in airports.
1: airport. Kerry, are there any success stories or testimonials that you've heard from passengers or users that you may be able to share?
2: Yes, sure. Well, I do know that we've been able to conduct a survey of 120 people who departed from Winnipeg Airport, and we re- and we actually received user feedback, and the the results were overwhelmingly positive. Uh, 97% of the user ratings are service as excellent or very good. Additionally, 99% of the users expressed their willingness to use our autonomous service again. So there's a comfort level, obviously, that was established there. Um, you know, many, many travelers who've undergone kneecap replacement surgery, use a cane. They, they've really spoken to the, the ability that this, this autonomous service can provide for them. Um, you know, a lot of people don't realize how far the departure gate uh, can be from the check-in counter and forget to ask for wheelchair assistance. Um, we had one 70-year-old traveler even commented on the great service after almost missing their flight. Due to waiting for wheelchair assistance, um, so yeah, so you know, we're finding the feedback is is gone beyond just "Wow, what is that? <laughs> oh my God, what, why is that unit you know operating with no one you know with no one assisting it in the airport?" To actually, hey, you know, this is a this is a terrific service, and uh, and passengers have have shown a comfort level in in being able to utilize it.
0: I can almost even see this being such a great tool at the large um, aviation conferences where it's just massive halls. Um, are there any plans to just expand in, in different sectors other than the ones you talked about earlier?
2: We're looking to introduce it into hospitals as well. There's a very practical use case in those examples um, for convention centers and the like and, and large scale, you know, entertainment facilities. We're in those already, and, and I would equate that more to what we call our manual drive service specific to the autonomous development. I think where you'll see us really expand is initially certainly in airports, but we also have some very significant interest and have actually gone to uh, proof of concepts in, in, a, in a number of hospital venues as well.
0: When I gave birth to my son, I had a C-section, and I had this feeling of just wanting to get out of the room and just get some fresh air, a new perspective. But because the nurses were so, so short-staffed, it, it took a while for them to come. So I'm—I was definitely mobile, but I couldn't walk long distances, and so I could see how this would have been such a great solution to have had.
2: Sometimes when we think of mobility assistance, we think about those that require mobility assistance, you know, on a. 24/7 basis whereas you know we have we have other individuals who are really just looking to you know they don't have the capability of walking you know an extended distance they may be partially mobility challenged and and as a result you know these kinds of options transportation options really you know can be made available to make that that experience you know that much more practical the other upside to this really and and this is you know Part of our pitch, if you would, to the airline industry is, you know, the more we can uh, we can make, you know, air travel more seamless and, and, and opportunistic for individuals, the more people will travel. We're really trying to connect the dots for that individual traveling passenger right from the point they leave home right through to their destination.
1: In terms of these wheelchairs, you know, what type of support or training is provided to users? You know, when they get to the airport, how how are they able to get up and go in um, as quickly as possible?
2: Uh, we're in discussions with airport authorities. We're in discussions with airlines, and we're in discussions with PRM companies directly. All of which can ultimately benefit from this program. So. We have the capability of having the program literally up and running overnight. I mean, we have that that capability, and if necessary, you know, we certainly have our own trained personnel on the customer service side—a team of personnel that go in to the airport in advance of and set the program up. Whether that includes, you know, mapping the facility or everything that goes into getting the program ready, and then, and then where appropriate you know, providing all of the related training, training information and materials. And even if, if required, you know, staying on site for an extended period of time to ensure that that those facilities are comfortable.
1: No, You recently uh, announced that you moved into the Savannah International Airport um, to provide service. Could you talk a little bit about that partnership and what that means for the growth of the company? First
2: of all, good on Savannah. I mean, they, they, they jumped. They jumped into this, and we've heard this from from the Savannah folks. I'm not, so I'm not just saying that that it's that it's really it's really been a, an effective and exciting innovation within the airport. Now, specifically, that program is what I would call the manual drive system. So we've taken you know our existing products, our C2s, and and basically turned them those over to Savannah Airport personnel who are actually managing the program. So that's a case where they're providing them to individual passengers and passengers are, you know, off they go utilizing these units within the airport, basically on their own volition.
0: To better understand how airports are thinking about this, we spoke to Kurt Bryant, operations manager at the Savannah-Hilton Head International Airport. with over 3.5 million passengers traveling through your airport which is savannah hilton head international airport in, in georgia what specific accommodations or services does the airport provide to assist wheelchair and power chair users
3: well our our industry is obliged to assist customers with disabilities um for those that don't know, there's some great research you can do by just going online. Uh, the Department of Transportation has a CFR, a Code of Federal Regulations, which is 14 CFR Part 382, and that's the Code of Fed- Federal Regulation that that, that really uh, dictates to commercial carriers what amenities and what things they have to do for customers with disabilities um, in in um, the travel experience. So, the the Department of Transportation covers what I call curb to cabin. So, you know, from the time somebody pulls up to a curb for a check in, they um, can ask for assistance even to get out of their car. A lot of people don't know that. Now, um, quite frequently in the traveling community, customers will, uh, you know, with different levels of disabilities, they know that, you know, when they go shopping, that they can park their car and there might be some disability parking spaces. So, of course, our parking decks, you know, accommodate that. But what what people with disabilities always want to know is that they have options. And that is, I think, the biggest piece for us in commercial aviation is really managing customers' expectations. And when I say that is what can customers really expect to have done? And that is a really heightened level of, of assistance that's available to them for the entire travel ribbon, that curb to cabin experience. So you say, what do we do? Well, as an airport, uh, what we do is, you know, make sure that our facilities, uh, the gifts, shops, the shops and surfaces that, you know, everything is set up to be able to accommodate anybody with the with disability. Uh, and those are the basic things through the America's Disabilities Act. So, I mean, we don't need to necessarily, you know, talk about, you know, our airports in America, you know, do they have bathroom stalls that can accommodate a disability? I mean, yeah, I mean, I think in our fabulous country, you know, that you're going to be able to You're going to be able to find those things, right? But uh, then, then the question is: Well, specific to an airport in commercial aviation, what ends up happening? So we're a very unique airport in that. um, Well, let me take a step back. Airlines historically subcontract with subcontractors to get the 14 CFR Part 382 needs done. So when you're at the airport and you see the wheelchairs being pushed around, those are historically subcontractors of the airline. We're a unique airport and where and whereby we uh, are the contractor for all the airlines we actually have a consortium so we want to make sure that we we give the absolute best customer service possible so if we have a bunch of airlines we don't necessarily want to have to have a whole bunch of different contractors that are going to be doing that job so for about 10 or 11 years we have been an airport that it is um, uh, part of the lease agreement for the airlines when they come to do business here, that we're going to be doing that part of the business for them. Now, what's interesting that people don't know is uh, a foreign carrier flying into uh, an American uh, airport, they're required also to, to provide the same kind of services. And those services are not only at the airport, but on board the aircraft based on aircraft size. Uh, you know, what kind of restroom facilities are available based on aircraft size. There's an onboard wheelchair for a customer that is completely immobile on this long flight, you know, that needs to use the restroom. So, so it's very, very clearly spelled out.
0: So I had a son uh, three years ago and at at the time I was living in Dubai. Uh, So I was traveling very far distances to come and visit family in America. And I just remember the anxiety that I would have as a new mom going to the airport. I also had a C-section, so it was very hard for me to be mobile and hold my son. How are you guys thinking about new mothers? Are you guys thinking about them?
3: Yeah, and that's a really good question because um, I always say, you know, that my passion is really about managing customers' expectations and uh, educating which is kind of what you guys are helping to do right so we need to define then in the world of disability we have to define and i do this when i train What what is a disability so it's it's really very uh, broad net that you throw out because the definition of the disability is it's temporary or permanent it can be mental or physical right so In that case, you're talking about a a mother who has had a C-section, doesn't ever think about themselves as somebody that is is protected under something that has to do with disabilities. But in this case, absolutely, you have every right then to say, I'm going to need some help at the airport walking that long distance, I will maybe need some support and assistance. Your basic wheelchair request is called the WCHR, the R stands for regular. That wheelchair request is anyone that needs assistance with distance. Like I just need some help. The department of transportation doesn't look at it like that person needs to be sitting in a wheelchair because that's why part of what you'll see in an airport are those golf carts driving around. The purpose of them is for you to be able to use. So when I talk about educating the mother, for example, when I'm talking to people, they're like, oh, I, I didn't know I had a right to sit on that. It's like, yeah, that's why that's there. It, it's there because you today might be in a situation with the fact that you have your children with you and you just had a C-section, you know, a month ago and walking this huge dish. That's why it's there. You don't have to ask permission of anybody to get on that cart. The next one is called the WCHS. That means I struggle with steps and slopes. I can't go up and down stairs and slopes like a a boarding jet bridge based on the aircraft type and size might be a steep slope. That's the, that's the, that tells my team, we need to meet you at the door of the plane, then the WCHC is the aisle chair, um, that. That code has been in the system for a long time. We don't usually use the C anymore. So I said the R is regular, the S is steps and slopes. The C is what we call the carry-on carry-off. We don't use that term anymore because it sounds kind of derogatory, like I'm gonna pick somebody up, right? So we call call it the aisle chair, but the code's probably been around since the 1950s, so it is what it is. And that's the person that needs assistance all the way to their seat. And then one of the other requests is I'm traveling with my own chair. If you click on that button, the airline wants to know what kind of chair, how much it weighs because, you know, airplanes, as you guys know, are about weight and balance and centers of gravity and, you know, a custom chair could weigh 500 pounds and how do they get it loaded on the plane and stuff. The airlines even uh, are so um, aware of the fact that these assistive devices like your own personal chair. Uh, that they and their hubs will usually have special teams of people based on the fact that these codes are in the reservation. They'll meet the plane. I know in the large airline hubs, they'll usually have teams that will come and meet the plane to transfer your chair to the next flight because they want a special group of people trained to handle this very delicate instrument, right? So uh, it, got, it gets down to a very, very granular level, but the only way people know of it, Shasta, is because you ask the question. You can go online to the Department of Transportation and get the airline passengers with disability bill of rights. The, the important thing to point out is the fact that people will say, yeah, but I'm not disabled. I'm not in that category, right? This is the education, Shasta, to talk about the fact that a disability is temporary, permanent, mental, or physical. Uh, when you When you work in the environment that we work in, you realize that we don't you don't really want to ever judge you don't know what somebody is dealing with and going through whether it's a new mom or mom with children and have just had a c-section or somebody that has a panic disorder we we want to make sure that we accommodate everything but it's also important for people themselves to understand that they they have these rights and that these regulations exist
1: you know recently your airport announced a partnership with will And I'm curious, how does your airport uh, collaborate with airlines or specific power chair providers to solve these mobility
3: issues that we're talking about? The thing that we always have in our mind is when you are uh, needing assistance or if you're disabled, the number one thing you want are A, options, and B, you want to be as independent as possible. Right. Any if you if you have a focus group, you you talk to people with disabilities. They they just want to be independent. This idea of creating independence for somebody instead of them having to have another person push them, which is when we do uh, studies, uh, people feel like they're a burden on others. They feel like they have to rely on others. So there there is that element of trying to take that away. Um, so this, this initiative that we've kicked off here, I'm happy to say is the first, but there's no airport that has done this yet. Part of 14 CFR part 382, uh, requires that airlines give what's called a wellness check every 30 minutes for customers that are sitting in an airport provided chair or the airline provided chair, right? I mean, let's look at it that way. The airline, you're now an airline customer and who cares who owns the chair. If you're sitting in that chair, the airline is supposed to check on you every 30 minutes to see if you need to do the, use the restroom. Some airlines enhance that because they want to, you know, say that they're the airline that wants to be more providing to customers with disabilities. But the bottom line is, you know, there is this still this idea that the is not independent. So when they're sitting in the power chair, they get to on their own go and use, you know, the facilities. Now, I'm not a wheelchair user, but for about a month I had this chair and sat in it and drove it around the airport. Um, to put myself in that position, I went into the disability uh, restroom facilities and the stall and turned in circles and went up to the sink and went through every single shop and services we have. When it time, I wanted to go to get, you know, some lunch out on the terminal, I took the chair with me to experience that. and. I was really very proud of our country (laughs) to be honest with you that, you know, I have an international background as well and have been an airline um, general manager and manager in different places. And, you know, I would go up to where I go every day to the, you know, the Burger King in the terminal uh, and suddenly I'm in the chair and, you know, they just naturally hand me the keypad down where I would normally put my card. Like, so to answer your question, how do services happen? it, It just, is so organic in our society now just in general if if you are somebody in that position that you you are really able to get services just anywhere and it's it's really you know in the gift shops like all the candy and everything is right on this level (laughs) so it was it was really kind of neat to see how that works
0: how can we empower the public to learn more and to be empowered to utilize these tools, I think it goes back to what you were saying. It's all about education.
3: The population that we have the easiest time with is the population that has the conversion van paraplegic. I'm in my own chair. They're the subject matter experts. So yeah, the cities do have organizations and communities. What we're talking about more than anything that we're, we we have a hard time um, communicating about is the person that doesn't see themselves as disabled. They don't know that these services exist. The, the elderly person, the person, as Michael mentioned, that you've now had a surgery, it's that temporary kind of disability, the mom with the cesarean, um, it's why I'm so excited to be on this podcast, you guys because th- this is the answer. We have to be able to have that conversation and fill that in And you know talking about you've learned a lot as a pilot I um, you know I retired after 28 years from one of the legacy carriers in customer service and I'm amazed at how many employees just don't even know how all of this really works, right They know that there's requirements. But then the airlines have also subcontracted it out to vendors. So it's like, oh it's those people, I don't know, we've hired them to do that. I'm going to step out on a limb and say, you know, the, the air carriers could probably do a, a better job, uh, training, you know, their employees as well. I always say that, you know, I, I kind of, just have this fantasy. It's like, I could go to all the airlines when they do pilot training and kind of talk about these things. Uh, the number one that we get most frequently as uh, a disappointment or a complaint is the uh, customer will step off the door of the aircraft and they want to know where their wheelchair is and i will say well you ordered the wheelchair for just distance so it's not down here at the door of the plane it's up at the top where the jet bridge is and then the customer will say well i didn't know that and then it's a very delicate conversation to say yeah but you're the one that selected which one you wanted and so i'm talking to flight attendants and they don't even know the bottom line is, is we want people to feel comfortable traveling and we want people to understand that they should feel comfortable and not feel like it's an obligation. They should be able to get to the family reunion just like everybody else. Um, we all know that people just don't want to sit at home anymore with their arthritis, right? We, we're going to get our knees replaced and we're going to go and we want to be able to buy a ticket and go fly on an airplane. That, that's what this is about. And we've got to be on the forefront of all of that. And I appreciate so much you guys helping to share that message because uh, there's nothing more freeing, as you guys know, as pilots than being up there in the sky and going to a fun new destination and seeing the
4: world.
0: Kirk Goodlett, Senior Director at InterVistas specializes in strategic planning, border facilitation, biometric technologies and the future of mobility and helping organizations identify and remove barriers to equal access. Kirk helps us better understand passenger mobility. One of your responsibilities is to oversee the future of mobility and helping organizations identify and remove barriers for equal access. Based on your experience, what are the most common mobility challenges that wheelchair and power chair customers encounter at airports?
4: Yeah, it's a really good question. And when we talk about challenges, I prefer to talk about them in terms of barriers. And so it's it's really important to keep that in mind that we're not necessarily talking about challenges, but rather barriers in our environments. And um, for me, it's important to um, categorize these barriers into five broad categories and those categories that we look at are technological, they're systemic, they're information and communication related barriers. there's attitudinal barriers, which really refers to um, attitudes typically uh, mitigated by training and awareness. And then finally that the fifth barrier is a built or physical environment. Um, and so when you're talking about mobility, uh, challenges or people with reduced mobility, we're often talking about the built and physical environment, and that's where our environments are designed and uh, and constructed to suit the needs of some, but not all. and And so, I really prefer to look at the world in terms of barriers instead of focusing on the disability itself. Um, some of the most common for people with reduced mobility is at airports are. Um, really involving limited capacity for vertical circulation. And so what I mean by that is today you can go to airport terminals and you can see that some elevators are far too small or there are far too few elevators. Um, obviously, when we, we talk about moving from one level to another, that's really important to, to keep in mind and to design uh, terminals and facilities that, that really help move people um, efficiently and comfortably from one level to another another thing that um, I, I often see another barrier is a lot of terminals love carpet a lot of airports love to put carpet everywhere and and I know it can often be uh, it can it can quiet the terminal when when you've got your roll boards suitcases and carry-on you've got all the the things that you drag through terminals and on tile that can be sometimes quite loud. But carpet is really, really challenging for people with reduced mobility uh, for a number of reasons, not least of which is if you've ever used a manual powered uh, wheelchair or mobility aid, to push yourself in, in a wheelchair on carpeted flooring is, is a, a very, very difficult thing to do. And if you're a caregiver, for example, uh, it can be be challenging as well, and so those are two just really um, the things that I notice very often. Uh, so, vertical circulation and then the the dreaded carpet in, in
0: terminals. I've started to notice a lot more when I'm at the airport. And uh, I couldn't agree with you more. I was just recently at San Jose um, uh, International Airport and out in California, and there was a lot of carpet. And there I was pushing the stroller and dragging my um, my luggage. And you know, I didn't realize how much work went into that until just now when you brought it up. And I thought, yes, that's true. Um, and even with the stroller, just being able to go down um, in the uh, elevators, there's typically a line, or the elevators super slow and small, um, which my son doesn't like. Small places, so there is so much more that I'm starting to notice, and I'm so glad that you guys are doing this work because it could really change the travel, the way that we travel.
4: Yeah, thank you. So, just to put some some statistics around what we're talking about globally, one in six people have a disability, according to the United Nations and World Health Organization. So that's about fifteen percent. Of the global population and when you look at the ways in which our populations are aging our the baby boomers are, are getting older all of that translates into a greater demand on our infrastructure and our terminal spaces and so what i often talk to clients about is, is we we're terrible at predicting the future in so many ways but demography is is pretty it's pretty good it's pretty clear we know the the direction in which demography is going for the for the most part and so that's what we need to use to really help shape our understanding of the future of mobility
1: so you shared um you know specific examples of obstacles that you know in um, block uh, wheelchair and power chair users. In terms of solutions and practices that you think could be implemented, can you speak to any that come to mind?
4: When I think of of innovative solutions, or even the word innovation, which I think so often is is overused, um, you know, there's the technological side of innovation. How can we use a technology or, or implement the technology to to make life easier? But then there's the more, I'll say, analog way to innovate, which is really about looking at an existing business process or operational procedure. And, and so there, there are very easy ways that airports and, and other stakeholders can just reevaluate their, their practices and procedures. And it could be something as simple as where to place, uh, quote unquote, special assistance areas um, to, to have people go to. Um, on the on the technological side, um, we've started to see the introduction of autonomous wheelchairs, which has been um, started in, in Narita in Japan, uh, but we're starting to see it in North America as well, on this side of the ocean. Um, when we we'll consult with people with disabilities and people with lived experience, caregivers, um, the same theme comes up time and time again, and that is, the importance of independence and, and dignity for passengers, and what I love about autonomous technologies is that that autonomous wheelchairs can provide that independence and that dignity without relying on manual intervention, without relying on staffing levels at a particular airport or with a particular airline, and um, and so I, I often look at those two examples of Narita. Of closer to where I live in, in Winnipeg, Canada, where um, I, I believe it was the first airport in North America to implement autonomous wheelchair technology. Um, there's so much potential to to really reduce barriers, to address barriers by implementing this type of, of technology.
0: You know, when I think of someone like my, my uh, grandma, she's very proud. She's a strong woman. Um, you know, she really loves her independence. And I can just see how disabled she feels when she's at the airport and it just um, it affects her. And so I can see when you talk about uh, just the the older general public who's traveling, they want that um, independence. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about um, autonomous wheelchairs and what does that implementation process look like?
4: I think that um, it depends on. I call it the governance model of of the airport. And so, for example, in the the U.S., it's slightly different than in Canada, where um, wheelchair assistance or mobility assistance is um, in Canada falls within the purview of the airline typically, and at certain places in the passenger journey, it falls within the, the purview of the airport operator. In in the U.S., it, it follows a slightly different. Uh, model, but nonetheless it's really about the, the what is the cost benefit analysis for for an airport and what I find today is that there's it's quite disjointed in terms of who does what who's responsible for for what, and what that does in practice is it leads to often inconsistent experiences. In terms of how people are treated at an airport, and, and from curb to gate, it can you can have handoffs, you can have uh, multiple points of failure in in the journey, and ultimately that just impacts the customer experience, which which I think nobody wants in the in the grand scheme of things across the, the ecosystem. Um, and so that's where the technology really really comes into play. If you were to be able to offer. An autonomous solution from being dropped off at the curb on on departures level that takes you all the way through that journey from check-in to TSA to get through the the concessions and, and so on throughout that entire experience without transitioning hands, without being transferred from one provider to another that transforms the experience that really does um, give people a sense of of independence and an autonomy that simply doesn't exist in, in the vast majority of places right now. So
1: Kirk, who would own this process in this case, if you empower the passenger, who is responsible for empowering them with the wheelchair? Would it be the airline? Would it be the airport or uh, a third party stakeholder?
4: And that's where I get back to my initial point in, in, Winnipeg, for example, it's the airport that took the lead to uh, p- purchase, to engage a vendor, to provide that service. Obviously, it's because we live in an ecosystem of, of co-managed experience. There's a lot of stakeholder collaboration and, um, and participation, and the airlines are a key part of that. Uh, but the airport in that particular case, they, they run the program
1: most passengers their interface with air travel is through the airlines so how would a passenger go about navigating securing a wheelchair
4: in that case it's um again if an airport wants to take on this this role it would be via its website through the website booking a service or in in some cases just first come first serve and having them near a particular airline or at The check-in area in the terminal
0: you know i travel a lot and every time i see that there's some reconstruction at airports or you know things are definitely improving and um i'm sure to do any reconstruction on airports it's quite a process it's not something that they just wake up Um, i'm sure the plans are developed and things are really thought of uh thought through um are there any best practices or guidelines that you would recommend for, you know airports, professionals, anyone really in the industry to understand this better.
4: Consult, 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 I think is, is a, a good good practice in general. It's so important to speak with, listen to, and heed feedback from people with disabilities and lived experience. And, and it goes back to this principle of, of nothing about us without us. You want to make sure that their perspective, their lived experience, their knowledge, is, is completely integrated into how you plan for the future of your facilities and services. I think sometimes, sometimes airports think that they know how to solve problems, and airports are great at mitigating risk and, and developing contingency plans and working with regulators and so on. Um, however, when it comes to barriers and understanding how to overcome these barriers, listening to the community is is fundamentally important. So I think best practices would include establishing a like a local accessibility advisory committee that includes people with lived experience to ensure that all of your programming, your technologies, all your products really reflect the diversity of the communities that you serve. If you are a public utility or you know you you want to support the the economy that surrounds the airport, it's so important that you you really do incorporate the values and the, um, the experience of the people that you serve. So I, I would say as a starter, an accessibility advisory committee is so important.
1: That's good that you mentioned um, the accessibility community because um, you work in a role with the Global Accessibility Working Group for ACI. So what are some of the key initiatives or projects that that working group is focused on to improve the mobility experience?
4: I'm a proud co-lead of a global task force on air- airport accessibility with a colleague from uh, Cincinnati Airport, CVG. And we're very proud to have contributed to something called the, um, the ACI, so Airports Council International Airport Accessibility Enhancement Accreditation, which provides airports some really practical guidance and helps baseline airports globally on how, um, how barrier-free they are and the direction in which they should head in the future to become more accessible, more barrier free and ultimately provide a better customer experience. A key part of, of the accreditation focuses on the built environment. And so how to identify, remove and prevent barriers to equal participation at, at airports and, and in facilities. As I mentioned before, by understanding what barriers exist at an airport, we can start to focus on how to remove them. And I think that's so, so important um, because if you don't know what the barriers are, you won't know how to identify them and therefore um, you won't be able to to remove them or remediate them. Um, so ultimately, we can start to focus on how to remove them so that people... With reduced mobility, and people with disabilities have uh, have just a much better passenger experience.
0: I always kind of take it back to um, the moms that are traveling. Um, you know, we don't necessarily think of us as disabled, but it is quite a process traveling with children. Um, and you're talking about global accessibility and barriers. I'd love to hear. You know, is the industry thinking about moms or even people who have language barriers who might? Not feel comfortable navigating around an airport. Are these are these um, demographics of people being considered?
4: Yes, yeah, and so one of the things that I typically go back to is there's a it's a very clear distinction in my mind where we don't really focus on the disability itself or the the condition itself. We focus on the environment because it, it's really the environment that presents barriers to. Um, um, living a fulfilling life equal participation whatever the case might be it's it's really about the environment and and so barrier focus is is very critical and on the design side so when we think about the future of programming and services we like to incorporate universal design principles and and so universal devo- design principles are um, very, utilitarian in a way it's it's the the greatest good for the greatest number of people essentially and so we, we focus on the idea of flexibility in use that use is simple and intuitive that information is perceptible and and uh, you know tolerance for error is is uh, is low so those are some of the universal design principles and and so to get back to your point is that if you design with, with universal design, principles in mind it would be the same type of experience for someone who uses a wheelchair as it would be for a mom or a dad pushing a stroller right and that's the whole idea of sloped ramps so sloped ramps are are great for everyone and why not make it great for everyone instead of just some
1: so we know that the aviation industry is one of the most highly regulated industries. And last year, the US Department of Transportation celebrated the 36th anniversary of the Air Carrier Access Act. Uh, Kirk, what role um, do policy and regulation play in driving improvement in access- accessibility for um, you know, wheelchair and power chair users at airports? Are there any regulations that come to mind?
4: This is a, a common question that I've, I've heard um, before and I think I think policy and regulation are important as a very baseline or a, a bare minimum requirement. We typically say that we want to situate our our work within a, a human rights framework. So we often look to high level commitments to accessibility to provide some of those guiding principles. One of which is the the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And what's what's important is to note that while there are plenty of international standards and recommended practices or called SARPs um, in the aviation world, many member states, so countries that are are independent, they're sovereign states, and they're um, part of ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, which is a UN specialized agency, um, many of these member states haven't adopted uh, protections or regulations that speak to accessibility specifically. So, and not to not to point out any particular state, but it's it's important to note that there is a tremendous amount of inconsistency globally on um, how to how to deliver uh, accessible services. And um, and that's where the ACI World Accessibility Accreditation that I spoke about just a, a moment ago is so important because it provides some form of guidance to states that are, what I would say, less mature in, in this sense. Uh, in, in Canada, as well as in the US, um, we're very lucky. We have a fairly robust set of regulations with you know, the DOT and in, in uh, the Canadian version, it's the Canadian Transportation Agency or CTA. But policy and, and regulations are only so effective as enforcement and, and oversight goes. So if the oversight and enforcement aren't there, um, that means they're great in theory, but sometimes much less effective in practice. And so what I find is is airports and in the aviation sector specifically are really pushing the envelope and really uh, looking at these types of services like autonomous wheelchairs and other technologies to improve the the um, the experience for people with disabilities. So it's I mean, that has nothing to do with regulations, yet you you see these people really at airports pushing the envelope and really trying to to improve. And I I love that. And so, sure, policy and regulations play an important role, but it's, it's the bare minimum, essentially
0: how do you think the future of airport accessibility will evolve? Is this going to be a slow process? Do you think there might be a pivotal point that's going to accelerate this? I would just love to hear what you think, how this is all going to unfold.
4: It's it's interesting because um, I was on a panel recently in Seattle for ACI North America's, um, what one of their, their events a couple months ago. And the panel was about airports in 2050, the year 2050. And what I what I found amazing when I started to think about twenty fifty is that twenty fifty is uh, as far in the future as nineteen ninety six was in the past, and so that that's not actually when you put it in those terms twenty fifty isn't so far away. I, I still remember what nineteen ninety six was like, um, but it's you're right. I think the the pace at which technology is evolving means that. Our infrastructure will largely remain the same. You're still going to go through the same types of building envelopes that many airports have to work with today. But it's really the technology that will, I think, really expedite the um, the change and and uh, experience here. So autonomous technologies give us a good glimpse of what what's to come. I think there are a couple. Um, if we look at technologies, autonomous technologies, and we couple that with things like voice assistance or um, AR and VR and the powerful networks at airports like 5G networks with lower latency, um, we can really start to provide an independent experience where people who experience barriers can have that freedom to traverse airports and enjoy the services and concessions that many airports offer. Um, So I think, I think when we look at AR, VR, um, voice assistance, the power of, of AI, ChatGPT, GPT, everyone is talking about. Um, I do think that we harness that um, properly. It can really transform the experience. W- one of the things I'll, I'll point out is that um, it's, it's so important to look at the airport journey as not just falling from curb to gate, but really at home. Far in advance one of the things that i've heard when we speak with um, people with disabilities and lived experience and caregivers is that uh, very often they want pre-planning tools they want pre-planning tools far in advance to really understand exactly what the environment might look like what to experience what to expect and so when you look at the power of something like um you know ar vr if you you're able to access an airport Via computer or via smartphone at home and plan your journey. You can tell where the closest washroom is, from door three. Um, and so, I think there are tons of opportunities where um, where these emerging trends and technologies will will meet and help deliver a better passenger experience.
0: Have you thought about EV tolls, um, electric? Uh, vertical takeoff and landing vehicles um, and and how you can incorporate accessibility as it's emerging and growing at this moment?
4: Yes. Yeah. Actually, that's a good, a really good question because I think when we look at the the current state of mobility, particularly for, for individuals who might use a, a larger mobility aid or, um, you know, a spillable battery, uh, there are aircraft in, in existence today in fleets that they can't accommodate certain size chairs or mobility aids. And so we look at the power uh, in the future of urban air mobility and advanced air mobility. This is an opportunity to really personalize the experience of travel. And, and so, yeah, it's a fantastic point. And I'm, I'm hoping that as manufacturers like Archer and, and all of these other um new entrance into the game of ev tolls and advanced air mobility they really do consider universal design principles and they understand some of the barriers that um, that people with disabilities face when it comes to air transportation.
1: It's a very exciting future and there's some uh, incredible opportunities on the horizon. I'm just curious, why is this work so important to you? Why are you involved in this sector?
4: I so on a personal side, I'm a parent advocate. I'm I'm a father to a son with a disability and I I as a caregiver, as a parent, you want the absolute best for your children, and, uh, and in my case, I, I do see barriers from personal and professional side of what I do. I really do believe in, in a future barrier-free transportation system. I, I believe that it is possible with the right collaboration, awareness, and support of everyone in the ecosystem. And for me, it's something that I'm so passionate about and um, and I really want to drive change.
0: Wow, that's really beautiful. I think Michael and I, we've learned so much from you. And uh, so thank you for all that you do. And thank you for making the time today.
4: Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me and I appreciate the discussion.
0: Well, that is it for this week. Uh, thank you all so much for joining us on Uplink. And we look forward to doing this again next week.
4: Take
1: care.